0: And thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 114, Franco's Plan for Victory. Last time, the Civil War in the North was all but over, resulting in a Franco victory, albeit with massive German and Italian help. And yet, Republican-held Madrid had hoped to help the North with an attack to the east of the capital, with the Aragon Offensive. But, as we have seen, the tactics used by General Pozas and his Soviet helpers had not evolved much. So, minimal ground was gained at a terrible loss of men. And yet, the resistance in the north was still not willing to go gentle into that good night. What was left of it fully intended to rage against its dying freedom. So, on August twenty-ninth, nineteen 1937, as the Battle of Bichete was roaring in the east. The Provincial Council of Asturias, in the northwest corner of the country, granted itself all powers, military and civil. It was now the Sovereign Council of Asturias, with its president, Bolamino Tomas. What's more, the Sovereign Council removed General Gamir Ulibari, who, it must be said, was asked to do the impossible. And in his stead, Colonel Adolfo plala was named. What troops remained, a number just under 40,000, was to be commanded by Prada. And the reorganization continued. Colonel Prada's chief of staff was to be Major Francisco Ciutat, and those troops remaining were now to be the 14th Corps, commanded by Francisco Galán. But, as we have seen previously, their efforts, though valiant, were overcome by sheer numbers, and the destruction of the Condor Legion and Italians. By the third week of October, the government in Valencia, on the east coast, slightly lower than Madrid, was evacuating. However, Franco's fleet blocked any ships from leaving, and foreign ships from entering. When the Condor Legion sank, the Republican cruiser Sascar, any serious protection was gone. Still, many government officials managed to board smaller boats that went undetected, and those lucky few were carried to France. This only sped up the collapse of the Northern Front, as Valencia and its surrounding area had been trying to help the Catalans. Now that the North was all but out of the fight, both sides knew that those nationalist resources which had secured their victory, the Carlist troops the Italian Corps, and Colonel Antonio Aranda's Galatian troops would be sent south and to the east. And though this transfer did not take effect until the next year, there was little Madrid could do to stop such a shift. But even before that movement could begin, it was important to control the coasts and sea lanes of the coming fighting areas. Hence, Nationalist warships were moved out of the Bay of Biscay and sent to the Mediterranean. And, as stated previously, a coming command is not a command until someone has been placed in charge, and that someone for the coming war was Admiral Francisco Moreno, who had set up his naval and air command in Palma, on the largest Balearic island, 100 miles or 160 kilometers due east of Valencia. Meanwhile, the Republicans were on the exact opposite trajectory. Prime Minister Negrin seemed powerless to stop the fall of the anarchists, as they were the main bulwark against the Soviets. Meanwhile, the Catalan provincials, again no friend to the Russians, were still tied up in their internal struggles that saw the non communist labor union fighters lose power and their leaders jailed on trumped up charges. Both of these trends were directly related to the secret police run by Stalin's agents. Their repression quickly became known as an equal to that of dictator Don Miguel Primo de Rivera during the second half of the 1920s. As the police arrested anyone the communists believed needed to be arrested, Prime Minister Negrin matched their tenacity with his own censorship and arrests. Franco could not have done a better job. Of course, none of this changed the fact that Republican Spain was still tied to Moscow and Stalin. For one, most of the government's gold was in the Soviet capital, which ironically had been just as much Negrin's fault as it was Largo's, because the former had convinced the Prime Minister to send it there. So even if Negrin wanted to pull away from Stalin, not that that seemed to be the case, he could not. And yet, This did not stop Stalin from doing his own pulling away, which he did starting in late 1937, early 1938. Obviously, Franco's blockade had a lot to do with supplies actually reaching Republican-held territory. But the truth was, less was being sent. Stalin could see for himself that Britain and France were not going to support Madrid, even if backing into such a position, even if doing so while grumbling about it. No, they seemed willing to let the non-fascist, ever more left-leaning Republicans fall to Franco. If this was the case, it only made sense for Moscow to get out before the Republicans were defeated, thus begging the question, what was the current state of relations between Soviet Russia and the fascist countries? As we have seen in the regular series in August of 1937, Stalin signed a non-aggression pact with Chiang Kai-shek's Nationalist China, which meant supplies had to go there as well. No, Stalin needed no fight with Hitler as his purges were underway, thus his military was weak, and now much supplies was heading to China. So Stalin figured out the truth about the Europeans' true intentions, but had Prime Minister Nagrin. When Negrin first came to power and began his harsh measures, President Zagna went along thinking it was what the desperate Republican government needed. However, as the president got to know his new prime minister better, he pulled back his support. Here was a power-hungry man, which wasn't a deal-breaker. However, he wasn't good at his job. He could not bring the people together and motivate them. In reality, the only thing they had in common was the desire to ruin President Luis Companiz and his Catalonian government. As we have seen, that was under way, but it wasn't helping against Franco, who had a unified command. As for the former prime minister, Largo Caballero, by the end of October he realized that the situation for Madrid was getting worse in all the important ways. And he still had his supporters. Maybe it was time to launch a new bid for the Premiership. But by the time his eyes were open, too many of his former followers were joining with, or at least allying with, the Communists. Still, for the sake of the country, he gave it a try. On October 17th, Largo spoke out. It was his first speech since losing his position in May. He spoke of the dangers Madrid currently faced and though he did not list those who were leading them astray, he did mention in which direction the country should not go. But the communists were too well entrenched by now. For his pains, Largo was not appointed to any major committee, so carried himself off to Barcelona, where he kept busy, but with work beneath his status, and thus was not a threat to anyone. And yet, it was about to get much worse for the people of Republican Spain, which had nothing to do with Franco. Various security communist services were put together under the name of S.I.M., or Service of Investigation Militar. Mirroring Stalin's purges back in Russia, anyone suspected of anything disloyal to the state, here meaning the communist cause, was arrested. And as the S.I.M. admitted very few mistakes, hardly anyone was released when found innocent. This body became official in August of 1937, and right out of the gate, became a monster that no one could control. Simply too many factions of it existed, whose local commanders had their own agenda to allow for any continuity. Personal enemies were hunted down, money was stolen. Prison labor camps were set up. The labor of those men put money into the pockets of a corrupt few. Once inside a camp, torture of all kinds was carried out. Some supposedly for scientific research, searching for more efficient interrogation techniques, but just as common was the desire to fulfill the instincts of a hired sociopath. A monster such as this could not stay long, In the shadows. So many lives were destroyed that one year into its existence, the Minister of Justice, Manuel de Irujo, its nominal head, resigned. The SIM would equally implode and explode as its cruelty encouraged the people to turn against it, and also the ever more losing prospects of the war from Madrid. Meanwhile, the Communists' influence grew. The labor prisons were used to get rid of opposition. When someone became ill or was wounded, if they were not a member of the Communist Party, any succor was slow in coming. Those approached and asked to join the party could find themselves shot if they replied in the negative. Of course, the official charge was treason or cowardice, but the men were still just as dead. Yet one of the strongest indications to the outside world that something was amiss in Madrid was the International Brigade's drop in morale in the form of letters sent home. The men who were told they were fighting for freedom were figuring out they were really fighting for the glory of the Communist Party. By October 1937, those Communist members of the International Brigades were doubting their own allegiance. To the party. Throughout 1937, several nationalities had either mutinied or had almost done so for various reasons, basically, their treatment from their communist officers. All this led to ever more foreigners being placed in labor camps where life was cheap. Equally, the foreigners believed, as they had agreed to no particular length of time, that they were free to leave whenever. They soon discovered the truth, as many were imprisoned for desertion. The final straw seemed to be in September of 1937, when Prieto, the Minister of Defense, officially placed the International Brigades under the Spanish Foreign Legion, which put them under the Spanish Code of Military Justice. It was then they were treated even worse. With the Republican North defeated, Franco had finally achieved a parity with Madrid in regards to troop strength, with each side having somewhere between six hundred and fifty thousand and seven hundred thousand men. But as nineteen thirty eight went by, those numbers would continue to slide in favor of the nationalists. what's more, Franco now had the industry, coal, and iron ore, and arms factory of the North working for him. Gearing up for 1938, Franco had his forces reorganized. Using five Army Corps, the Nationalists garrisoned the fronts while their elite formations were woven into the new Army of Maneuver. This latter force would be used for offensive measures in the future. At this point, it would have behooved the Republicans to rethink their entire military organization and their tactics in a defensive light. And yet Madrid, nor their Soviet advisers, were capable of such out-of-the-box thinking. Now was the time, if they were to honestly stay in the war, much less thinking of winning, to give up their cumbersome offensives that had thus far gained them little additional territory, but cost them many lives. Instead of proceeding as usual, it would have been best to focus on defending what they still held while using smaller formations to harass the enemy at their weaker points, as well as hitting the enemy behind the lines. This would have forced Franco to focus on defending everything he now controlled, with overwhelming strength, thus sapping his strength to go on the attack. But between the Spaniards' idea of fighting in a manly way, and the Soviets' lack of imagination, which they normally saved for espionage, The Republic continued fighting along traditional lines, without superior numbers or having the right kind and numbers of weapons, and lastly, holding out until a general European war broke out, as most foreign ministers believed was only a matter of time. By the end of 1937, the Nationalists and their allies had 400 warplanes operating in Spain, And of these, more and more measurements were being used by the now-experienced German pilots. Stalin assisted this air dominance of Franco by pulling out more of his Soviet pilots to help China fight the Japanese in Shanghai and in North China. To be sure, the Soviet-made planes remained in Spain, but were being flown by less-experienced Spanish pilots who were up against superior enemy aircraft. And, for now, the Soviets were still trying to send planes to Spain, but Franco's blockade only grew tighter, hence less supplies, of all kinds, were making it to Spain. Still, one of the last shipments to reach the Republicans that year dropped off 31 Kayushka bombers, which allowed the now-defenders to construct four squadrons of bombers, to go along with their four squadrons of older fighters. Up to this point, the Republicans' air attacks had their best results when attacking the enemy's airfields. In mid-October, an air raid was launched against the Nationalist Airfield at Saragossa, which brought about the destruction of every enemy plane on the ground. But as in so many other ways, Franco, on the advice of the Germans, began constantly moving his planes around, and used, to a greater degree, dummy aircraft to fool the Republicans. Again, the Germans and Italians were helping Franco adapt to each situation, negating each victory, however limited, Madrid achieved. Meanwhile, Franco had decided to launch another attack at Madrid, now that his numbers were roughly equal to the enemy. This time, his attack at the capital would come from the northeast, along the Aragon Front, close to the border between Nationalist and Republican Spain. Franco knew that the northeast corner of Catalonia was in no shape to launch an offensive, so his army of maneuver should be relatively safe in putting their backs to Catalonia and driving southwest towards Madrid. The offensive would use the Saragossa-Madrid road, with Valera's Army Corps of Castile on the left, the Italians in the center, and the Army Corps of Morocco on the right. The German and Italian air forces would support, and the Navarrese troops would act as reserves. It was an impressive array of men and weapons, and hopefully would be the beginning of the end of the Republican Rebellion. Yet, standing in the way of this assault was Cipriano Mera's 4th Corps, stationed around Guadalajara, some 15 miles or 24 kilometers northeast of Madrid. Mera's spies had learned of the operation before it was launched, and that it was massive. This threat was of the first order, so word was hastily sent to the capital. Recently promoted by the new administration, General Rojo was planning a large offensive of his own, west of Madrid, which would hopefully reach the Portuguese border, thus splitting the Nationalist-held area in two. But once word of this massive Nationalist assault reached the Republican government, it commanded the military to come up with a plan to distract the Nationalists' intentions. Due east of Madrid, by some 100 miles, or 160 kilometers, is the town of Teruel, which served as the provincial capital of the Teruel province. As the front line stood near it, Teruel was at the end of a nationalist-controlled peninsula. As such, to those in Madrid, it seemed the perfect spot to launch an attack, the idea being to send in two forces that would meet up just west of the town and thus cut it off from nationalist control. It was also hoped that this would be enough to force Franco to not launch his capital-threatening offensive. It was pointed out by others in uniform that as the planned diversion was not that far from the Nationalist attack, those troops might end up being sent south to take on the Republican strike force, attempting to take Teruel. If they did come this way and wipe out the strike force, then there went Madrid's only hope for any offensive action for a long time. But Rojo justified the risks, if only to himself. So the Republican strike force, which was about to head west, was told to turn around and make for Turuel in the opposite direction. Now heading east was some 40,000 men, General Enrique Fernandez Eighteenth Corps, General Leopoldo, Menendez's 20th Corps, Juan Ibarola's 22nd Corps, as well as the 13th and 19th Corps. In overall command would be Colonel Juan Hernandez Saravia of the Army of Levante. Per Soviet doctrine, each force would have its own supply of tanks. There would be no concentration of armor. The last two forces mentioned were brought in as Rojo did not trust the fighting spirit of their international brigades, or rather, their desire to fight the nationalists. However, their desire to fight against their allied communists was strong, as all cohesion began to break down. As for the British and Canadian battalions, their low morale showed in their upkeep of their weapons. Everything was dirty, most especially their rifles. As for the French, many of them would not be quiet about their anti-Semitism, which ran counter to the argument of fighting for equality and freedom. Then there were the Germans, who could not hide their disdain or condescension of everyone. In all, most of the foreigners believed they were better than the Spaniards, and as such, few shared their packages from home of food and cigarettes. Awaiting the large Republican force, though they did not know of the impending crisis coming at Teruel, was the 52nd Division, a force of only 10,000 men, commanded by Colonel Domingo Rey de Harcourt. The colonel had already created lines of trenches, supported by strong points, some of which were on hills, and those had artillery, which completely dominated the town and its surrounding area but neither Rey de Harcourt nor Franco believed they would see any action until the spring. Rojo's plan was to have the 11th and 25th Divisions come from north of Teruel and head southwest, while the 34th and 64th Divisions from the 25th Corps would start south of the target town and head northwest. All four divisions would meet up west and northwest of Teruel, Thus, choking it off from Nationalist help. Once the pincer was complete, units from the Twenty eighth and Twenty second Corps would come in behind these four divisions, but then turn to the north to await any Nationalist counterattack. Meanwhile, the Twentieth Corps, with its own tanks, would make for Teruel proper and attempt to take the city. The pincer movement began on December fifteenth. The 11th Division, which was coming from the north, broke through the unexacting nationalist lines. By 10 a.m. that morning, the Republicans were deep in enemy territory and managed to take the town of Concoud. The main reason for their success was going without the usual pre-artillery bombardment and silently charging the enemy, who did not know what was going on, until it was too late. Unfortunately for the men of both sides of this battle, it also began to snow on December 15th, and Spain would have to endure their worst winter in 20 years. Hello. And thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 115, Desperate Measures. Last time, the Republicans had launched an attack due east of Madrid in order to stop Franco's latest attempt to come at the Capitol, now that he had parity with the enemy in terms of men. The attack, when it came on December 15th, was initially successful, The pincer movement just northwest of Teruel had cut off the town from Nationalist help. However, the Republicans had not improved their coordination of infantry and armor, which was about to show itself. In other areas of the attack, the tanks started off, but quickly left behind their supporting infantry. Hence, they had to stop to allow the men to catch up. This would happen five times on the first day of battle not a propitious beginning. But now that Teruel was isolated, the men of the 18th Corps joined up with those of the 22nd Corps at San Blas, in the center of the Nationalist territory that was shaped like a peninsula, with Teruel at its end. This new defensive line began to take shape on December 20th. Meanwhile, the 40th Division came ever closer to the eastern edge, of the target city. With things going so well, Rojo himself showed up, along with foreign journalists, including Ernest Hemingway, and examined his men's handiwork. Rojo hoped he would soon be able to report to Madrid the capture of a provincial capital. When news of this attack reached Franco, he reacted as a man slided, not as a leader of a country. His German advisors told him to let the Republicans waste their time and men on the one town. After all, they were about to go in for the kill. They said it would actually help the Nationalists to have so many of the enemy troops removed from the capital. But the more Franco pondered, the more he could not allow his hated enemy to have the small and probably temporary victory. His personal honor was at stake, or so he had determined. So, scratching the planned assault against the capital, he decided to save Teruel. The Germans reported back to Berlin. The Generalissimo decided from the start, for reasons of prestige of a special political nature, and at the cost of the already prepared attack via Guadalajara towards Madrid, to re-establish the front around Teruel, along the lines as it was on December 15th. Franco moved swiftly and impatiently. General Aranda was to reopen the way to Teruel with three divisions. General Davila was to take the 81st Division, which was about to threaten Madrid, and assist. Just as the new Republican defensive line was forming, Franco, in earnest, began to pull together an army to save the threatened Teruel. Davila would be in overall command, and he would have more men than ever before. The Army Corps of Galicia would come up from the south, while the Corps of Castile came south and would create its own pincer movement on the Republican one that had come before. Most importantly, this massive amount of infantry would be supported by any and all artillery units available, plus the Condor Legion. But here is where the weather dominated. The planes were unable to take off for a week, which meant that the first real assistance came in the form of the Condor Legion's anti-aircraft batteries. Meanwhile, in Teruel itself, Lister and his tanks and the men of Colonel Enrique Fernandez quickly reached and encircled the town. Colonel Domingo Rey de Harcourt, the Nationalist commander in charge, having only received orders from Franco to hold out, pulled back his 10,000 troops, to the city center. He knew help was on the way. The question was, would there still be a pro-Franco command to greet it? His men were placed around the civil governor's office, the bank, the hospital, and a few more buildings. That's all he had men for. The Republicans, intoxicated with the pending victory, continued to advance. But now the fighting was street by street, building by building. Each structure that was in question was peppered with machine gun fire. Only then were men sent inside to clear the building with small arms fire and grenades. This same type of fighting would play out in Stalingrad years later and had already done so in Shanghai. It was slow going and costly in terms of men and ammunition But there was no question of risking leaving an enemy force in the rear. As had happened before in this war, the men wisely chose to knock holes in homes and travel that way to the next structure, rather than going out into the street where enemy guns were waiting. As night came and the temperature dropped below zero, the fighting continued. But as it was dark, the combat morphed into bumping into each other, only to use one's bayonet to avoid giving away a position. To make their task harder, the Republican troops were ordered to help the civilians to get clear of any current fighting and to be settled into a part of town that was already enemy-free. The men did as ordered, but it slowed their advance. The area held by the Nationalists shrank. With a smaller perimeter, the Republicans were able to bring up their artillery within point-blank range. While Ray de Harcourt and his men dealt with such withering attacks, the Republican miners worked to place explosives under the governor's office. Between the explosions and machine gun fire, the official building was taken. Ray de Harcourt and his remaining troops ran for the Hotel de Aragon, next door. With the situation thus, Rojo proclaimed that Teruel was now in Republican hands, which wasn't quite the truth. There were still some 4,000 Nationalist troops who were trying to hold out until relief came. Still, with the victorious proclamation, Hernandez Saravilla was promoted to general, and Rojo himself was honored by the Minister of Defense, Prieto. This had taken place on Christmas Eve. However, when the weather cleared on December 29th, The Nationalists struck back, hard, sensing Franco's anger and unwillingness to accept excuses. On that day, more than 100 tons of bombs were dropped on various Republican positions, within the town and along the defensive line. To be sure, the Republicans sent up their own fighters, but such was the massive escort around the German and Italian bombers. Not one of those was lost or even seriously damaged. This earth-shaking attack lasted for two hours. Once the bombers returned home, ten Nationalist divisions moved out, heading southwest, to break the Republican defensive line northwest of Teruel. Amazingly, the line held. The attackers were unable to shift the Republicans more than a few hundred meters. But when the weather improved the next day, the Nationalist bombing and artillery barrages commenced again. The Heinkel 51s of the Condor Legion hit the trench systems and reserve positions, hoping to spook the main defenders supporting troops. Then the Germans used their 88 flat guns on key points along the line. Again, rewriting the rulebook of modern warfare as they went along, it was reported back to Berlin, As we have already tried out in the Asturias, the enemy was rendered incapable of fighting when shot up in their trenches by a combination of strafing and flak. But on December 31st, the snows returned. The temperature dropped to 20 degrees below zero. Many the next morning, on New Year's Day, did not wake up from their night slumber due to the cold. The tanks and trucks of both sides were frozen, inactive, but the Condor Legion was able to get a few planes airborne by carefully chipping the ice off the wings. The Republican troops' lives were made all the worse for having to deal with the weather and sudden death from above. On that same day, the last of 1937, the Navarrese troops of Valino and Grandes retook the height just outside the town, called the Tooth of Teruel, or Muela de Teruel. The question the Republicans in the town had to ask themselves was, had the enemy been able to bring up their large guns as well? If they had, then soon none of them would be safe. But before this could be determined, the Republican position grew worse. That night, Major Nieto, the commandant of the mostly captured city, ordered a general retreat. Perhaps it was the threat of the possible guns on the height, or the hysteria created by fascist agents, or more likely, both. Either way, the Republicans, who had worked hard and sacrificed much to get this far, began to leave in a panicked retreat. In fact, the withdrawal happened so quickly those hunkered down with Ray de Harcourt had no idea they were the lone soldiers within the city. On New Year's Day, the retreat was still not generally known of. General Wohol and the 5th Corps came forward to stop the nationalists who were trying to reach Teruel from the northwest. Their job was made easier by a blizzard. And even the Germans' trick of chipping off ice from their planes would not make them operational. Still, if the Nationalists were stuck, then so too were those of the defensive line. The Condor Legion had their Italian artillery support units come up and begin firing on the troops trapped in their trenches. When little death or damage was achieved, some of the German officers went to the gun placements to see what was going on. Turns out the Italians were firing their guns based on the maps they had with them. They were not looking up to see where the shells landed to then make adjustments. The maps said the trenches were in a certain location, so those spots were bombed. The Germans walked away, disgusted. Before the sun went down on January 1st, the Republican High Command found out about the retreat and ordered the town to be retaken. The men rushed back in, wondering why they had left in such a panic in the first place, and took up the fighting where they had left off. But each day started for Franco, with a message to Ray de Harcourt, ordering and pleading with him not to surrender, that help was on the way. Which was true enough, but the forces to the northwest and southwest could not break through the Republican lines which meant that, by the end of each day, the nationalist perimeter within Teruel was even smaller. By January 7th, the nationalists within the city were surrounded, the enemy just a stone's throw away. Ray de Harcourt was losing men, fast. So, with the obvious in front of him, the commandant surrendered that afternoon. Franco's previous pleading and stirring speeches morphed into criticisms of weakness and cowardice. Now his anger, which was already great, reached a new level, and ten days later, an even larger counterattack commenced. The reinforced attacks coming at the valley just north of Teruel were supported by dozens of German and Italian aircraft. To combat this latest wave, the international brigades of the 35th Division were brought in. Despite their lowered morale, the foreigners again fought bravely. They lost many men due to the enemy's artillery and air attacks, but they held their ground. The Nationalist Offensive was renewed again two days later, on January 19th. But again, the International Brigades held on, despite losing many more men. Then the Republican officers sensed a loss of momentum on the enemy's part, so they ordered their men to rise and advance. Yet the foreigners had received little food during the fighting and were forced to eat snow to survive, so they did not have the strength to attack. The officers, mostly Soviets, again ordered their men to advance with the threat of being shot for disobeying orders. For the men of the 84th Mixed Brigade, this was too much. They refused, and some 46 of them were shot out of hand. The clashes of forces north of Teruel continued. By early February, the skies began to clear. It was still cold, but the conditions were now perfect for flying. And as Franco's blood was still up, some 100,000 men who were gathered along a 30-kilometer front made up of Galician troops, Moroccans, Navarrese, and Italians, with 500 guns, were ordered forward. Their target was the city of Alfambra, just a bit further north than where the Nationalists had been fighting. In truth, Franco was using his own pincer movement to attempt to cut off any help reaching the city by capturing a slice of Republican territory due north of Teruel. This would give the attackers control of the valley that led to the city. In all other directions, the city was dominated by heights. So, if this could be done, then the Nationalists would have a more direct route to Teruel that went around the defenders' impressive line to the northwest. On February 5th, the attack started. Sadly, for some of the Carlist troops, The Italian pilots above them mistook them for the enemy and sent two waves of planes down on them. Fortunately, their accuracy was not that great, and most of the men survived. To be sure, the Republican defensive line to the northwest of Teruel had fought off several impressive attacks. Yet the men, other than the international brigades aligned due north of the city, had never seen action before. When the 100,000 men of Franco charged at them after their bombers and artilleries had had a go, the unexperienced soldiers ran away without firing a shot in anger. News of this debacle spread, and the Republicans within Teruel began to evacuate. Those to the northwest also started to pull away, not wanting the enemy to be able to swing in behind them. By February 22nd, the last of the Republican defenders had left the town. Some fighting north of the city continued for another four weeks, as those unbloodied Republican troops had to fight their way through the now-Nationalist-controlled territory. By the end, the Republicans had lost 60,000 men, the Nationalists 40,000. Horrific for both sides, but the numbers were still tilting ever more, in Franco's favor. With the wasteful losses of a battle that should never have been fought, it was time for the blame game. The officers blamed the politicians, the politicians, the men in uniform. Either way, many of their best fighters were now dead. Those that survived were demoralized to a whole new level. Also, so many airplanes had been lost that Madrid would never recover in this area. Prime Minister Negrin and his government had only two hopes as March of 1938 opened up. One was to reopen a route to the French border to receive Soviet supplies. Or two, to hope the Republican Navy, which had done little to date due to the lack of enthusiasm of their crews, would step up and protect the northeast coast. Which, of course, made Franco pull his attention to the Aragon Front. If his men could capture that entire area, then France would remain cut off and the Republican fleet would remain practically useless. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So I'm sorry that this did not come out on time. The last night of the month, of course, was Halloween, and the night after that, I had to eat half of my kids' candy. So I want to apologize to you, not to my children.